The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Help! I need somebody. Help! Not just anybody. Help! You know I need someone. Welcome to Family Caregivers Unite with Dr. Gordon Atherley. Family caregivers don't have to be alone in their experiences. You will hear from experts and other caregivers facing the same issues that you may be facing. Now, here is your host, Dr. Gordon Atherley. Welcome to episode 310 of Family Caregivers Unite. This is Dr. Gordon Atherley, your host. I'm a physician retired from medical practice. Our topic today is questions of ethics in collecting family genetic data. Now, a bit of history. In 2012, a news story broke about genetic inheritance. It was the finding of the body of England's long-dead King Richard III and how genetic data was used to link him 500 years later to a Canadian citizen which raises the question of what other things genetic data can be used for. Well, genetic data has important and beneficial uses, such as warning us that we may have a genetic predisposition to a particular serious illness. Uh, It has beneficial uses such as developing medical treatment personalized for our personal genetics. And it also has beneficial uses such as research into ways of counteracting our dangerous genetic predispositions if we have them. But genetic data also has the potential for being abused, which is why our topic, questions of ethics in collecting family genetic data, is so important. To discuss it, our guest is Dr. Alice Virani. Now, Alice specializes in the social ethical and cultural implications of new genetics-related technologies. A genetic counselor by training, she holds a master's degree in public health from Columbia University, a master's degree in human sciences from Oxford University, and a PhD in medical genetics and applied ethics research from the University of British Columbia. She currently serves as a clinical ethicist for the Provincial Health Service Authority of British Columbia. She has considerable experience in research ethics, and she served as the ethicist on various research ethics boards since 2008. She provides education and training in ethics and teaches a graduate seminar in ethics and genetics, among other ethics-related courses at the University of British Columbia. And she On top of all that, she maintains a consulting practice and she's provided consulting services for national organizations such as Health Canada and the Canadian Institute of Health Research. So welcome to the show, Alice. Thank you very much. I'm happy to be here. Great. Now, first first question. Please tell us more about your career and about any experience you have with family caregiving. Alice? So 
um, as you mentioned in the introduction, my um, background is as a genetic counsellor. And as a genetic counsellor, we, we work with families with genetic diseases in the families and talk to them about the risks and benefits and implications of going through genetic testing, um, undergoing genetic research, and uh, the, the um, future considerations for family members and so on of genetic information. So while I really enjoyed my uh, career as a genetic counsellor, uh, ethics really did pique my interest. Um, there are many ethical issues uh, which are found in, in genetics, some of which we'll be talking about today, and I decided to pursue PhD research and clinical ethics work so that I could further the ethics side of um, my interest in genetics. So that's really uh, where, where my background has led me so far, and in terms of family care, Giving. Uh, I mentioned that with patients um, and families where there's genetic disease in the family and at the current time as a clinical ethicist, I work with patients and families on a regular basis, not just regarding genetic issues and ethical issues which arise in genetics, but also ethical issues which arise um, throughout the healthcare system. Right. Now, please tell us about your work as a clinical ethicist. Tell us more about that. Sure. So um, there's not many of us around, and so you don't really encounter us that often, but um, there are usually a few of us um, based at hospitals. And what we do um, as ethicists is work with healthcare teams and with patients and with hospital and healthcare management regarding ethical issues that arise in day-to-day hospital practice. So the kind of things that might um, might arise are, you know, what type of treatments would be appropriate if someone is um, towards the end of their life, um, what kind of things should be offered and should not be offered, um, what should we do when family members disagree either with each other or with the healthcare team about what's uh, in the best interest of a patient, um, what do we do when a patient isn't able to voice their own opinions as to what they would like um, for their health care and so we have substitute decision makers such as family members making decisions for them and so on. So those are some of the issues that we encounter um, in clinical ethics um, and we work with healthcare teams and with patients and families and um, all aspects of, of the healthcare continuum in terms of trying to provide uh, resources and ethical frameworks so that people can move forward. Right. Now, please explain what family genetic data actually is and why it raises questions of ethics. You've already said several important things about that, but I'd like you to put that together. What family genetic data actually is and what about the questions of ethics, the ethical questions that it actually raises. Yeah. Now listen. So, uh, you know, family genetic data um, um, is all genetic data, basically. Uh, we get our genes and our DNA from our parents and from, broad, um, from um, other generations before them. And so while we're all individual and unique, our genetic information also can tell us something about our family members, our siblings, our grandparents, our cousins, and so on. So when we're thinking about um, genetic data, the familial nature of genetic data is is truly important because we 
we can't think of patients as individuals. So when we have questions about um, patients and what they should do usually in the healthcare system, usually we think of people as being autonomous. That means we respect that person's right to make decisions for themselves. Um, we respect their right to choose different options and treatments in their health care. We respect their right to disclose information or not disclose information to family members, to other members, and so on. But in the case of genetics, what's important is to consider that individual choice can certainly have impact on other family members. So, for example, um, we know that um, having genetic testing done for, say, um, uh, a disorder like um, Huntington's disease will have implications for someone's family members so that if you get tested for Huntington's disease and you test positive, then you automatically know that one of your parents um, uh, will also have the disease if they've not had symptoms already. And so you might um, find, inf- by doing genetic testing, you might find out information about a family member that they don't even know themselves. Um, so those are one, those, that's kind of one of the main things that people um, are concerned about when we think about genetic information is that although we have a medical system that focuses on the individual and the individual's autonomy, Genetic information is familial, and so individual decisions have impacts for families and for broader relationships. Well, we talk about privacy laws more and more in these computerized days. What I mean, I, I'm not asking you a legal question. I'm just asking your impression. How useful are privacy laws in dealing with the kind of situations you've been talking about where, although we want to respect autonomy, the fact is that if we disclose or don't disclose genetic data, that may have consequences for others that are linked to us. So what about privacy rules, privacy laws? Alice? Yeah, well... Privacy laws and privacy rules are important, um, and there is consideration, you know, given to them. And I think how this plays out in the in the genetics world is that we spend a lot of time counselling families and working with families who are making decisions about genetic testing to try and ensure that these privacy breaches and surprises don't occur, um, at least don't occur regularly. And so when someone is considering genetic testing, which will have broad implications for family members and so on, we spend a lot of time talking to them about what they've um, talked to their family member about, what their plan is in terms of communicating results to them, the importance of communicating results, um, and so on. So while privacy laws do have um, some impact, we really, I think, in the genetics community still look at these uh, issues on a case-by-case and person-by-person basis and try as much as possible to mitigate privacy concerns through appropriate counseling. So would it be fair fair then to say of you all who are in the um, town the question of ethics, working with the questions of ethics in relation to genetic data, that basically you are using ethical principles in individual cases to help uh, resolve 
any issues, any challenges relating to privacy, secrecy, or openness. Would that be right? What I've just said. To I, you? Think, I think that is. Um, I think that is a fair um, a fair comment. Um, I think the issue is always with ethics is that um, we have principles and we have theories that we use in our day to day practice, but the complications come in when we have different different ethical. Um, principles conflicting with each other. So I talked at the beginning about the principle of autonomy, which is um, uh, respecting individuals to make informed decisions about themselves and their own health care. However, we've also mentioned that sometimes um, decisions which people make and autonomous decisions that people make can have implications in terms of benefits and harms to other people. And those are the principles that you hear um, sometimes spoken of in medicine, the do-no-harm principle, which is non-maleficence, and beneficence, which is doing um, things which are good for people and promote good for people. So what do we do when someone's autonomy is in conflict with that principle Beneficence or non-maleficence. So that's the tricky part, is when we have a conflict in the ethical principles which guide our work. Right. Now, talking of guiding, it's the time where we have to take a short break, so we'll do that now. This is Dr. Gordon Asme. My guest is Dr. Alice Virani. You're listening to Family Caregivers Unite on the Voice America Variety and Empowerment channels and CJMP 90.1 FM Community Radio. Please stay with us. We will be back. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com The latest business information is made simple with the Voice America Business Network. The professionals in the business world bring you live talk radio shows featuring an array of business topics, strategies for building wealth, sales and marketing, stock trading, investing, and business technology. Voice America business hosts are professionals in their fields and bring to the airwaves weekly business discussions that offer up-to-date information, advice, and education. The Voice America Business Network. The bottom line in business talk. Follow the Voice America Talk Radio Network on Twitter. We're at Voice America TRN. You'll get the latest fix on what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and general happenings that you should know about at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. Now you don't have to miss anything when you're away from your home or office. Just go to twitter.com forward slash Voice America TRN or follow along with us at Voice America TRN, the Voice America Talk Radio Network. We're on the cutting edge of social media. Can you keep up? Streaming live. The leader in Internet talk radio. VoiceAmerica.com You are listening to Family Caregivers Unite with Dr. Gordon Atherley. If you have any questions or comments about our program, please address them by email to docg at familycaregiversunite.org. Now, back to Family Caregivers Unite. Welcome back to our listeners to Family Caregivers Unite and Dr. Alice Virani. Our topic is questions of ethics in collecting family genetic data. Now, as we've said, 
Already, genetic data relates not only to us as individuals, but also to our families, our ancestors, and to our children and their children's children. So let's talk about the ethical questions that arise, Alice, when genetic data could be misused or misdirected, or when people, and you've already mentioned some of this, are asked to consent to its use. So first, first question then is, what do you see as the most important ethical questions that arise when family genetic data could be misused or abused if it got into the wrong hands? Alice? Well, I think the important ethical questions that arise are really related to potential harms to an individual. Um, and what I mean by this is uh, relates back to that ethical principle of non-maleficence that I was talking about, uh, which is a do-no-harm uh, principle. Now, the questions that arise um, when data, genetic data might be misused or abused relate to, uh, often you hear talked about in relation to uh, genetic discrimination. Now, what do I mean by genetic discrimination? Well, genetic discrimination is like other forms of discrimination, using information about someone in a way um, to negatively impact them. So you're making assumptions about someone which may or may not be true, um, and you're using these assumptions to uh, make decisions which has a negative impact on someone. So in genetics, this gets talked about on a number of levels. So you hear people talk about discrimination in terms of life insurance or health insurance um, so that people who, for example, were found to have a genetic predisposition to, for example, a neurological disorder might be subject to uh, life insurance discrimination whereby they weren't able to obtain life insurance or um, they might be subject to health insurance discrimination whereby they weren't able to uh, obtain health insurance. Now, in, a, in the Canadian system where we have um, a national health service, this isn't as of much concern as it would be, for example, in a system such as the United States uh, where it's a more private-based health insurance system. We can also see discrimination arise in other areas. We can see um, discrimination arise, for example, in employment. So, for example, if an employer found out that you were likely to develop cancer or heart disease or something like that in their near future, they might decide not to hire you. Um, or if, for example, someone um, in an education system uh, found out that you had um, some genetic uh, diagnosis or predisposition which made you uh, in some ways less likely to obtain um, high education levels, you might be discriminated against. So I think that that's where um, we see the most important ethical questions arise, but we can also see genetic discrimination arise um, in other areas such as relationships even um, amongst family members. Okay. Now, I want to follow up on that by, it's the same question, I want you to identify for us, please, what you see as the most important ethical questions, but they're the questions that arise when family genetic data that's already been collected is widely distributed electronically and stored indefinitely in computers. What kind of ethical questions do, do those situations cause to arise? Now, let's... So I, th I think that 
Um, similar uh, questions arise as to some of the ones that I've alluded to in terms of genetic discrimination. But the issue with the wide distribution electronically and the indefinite storing on computers is that you're, you're widening the possibility for people um, to have access to this information. And so if data is stored indefinitely, um, then there's more likelihood that, for example, um, researchers or other people coming into a clinic um, would have access to that information later on down the line um, who might not um, necessarily be appropriate to have access to that information. So it's kind of broadening the circle of people who might have access to such information um, when it's distributed electronically or it's stored indefinitely in computers. I think some of the other questions um, that uh, arise is that when it's distributed electronically is the possibility of it um, falling into the wrong hands. Um, and uh, we think, I think we've all seen cases in the media where people have left laptops or they've left data sticks or whatever it might be in public places accidentally and suddenly, um, you know, thousands and thousands of people's medical information uh, is potentially um, revealed. Um, so when we have these types of large electronic distribution systems, we uh, widen the possibility for that. Now, is again the same structure of the question, which is asking you to identify the most important ethical questions you see. But the context is this. When people are asked to give consent to disclosure of their family genetic data, to healthcare providers such as doctors, nurses, hospitals, and clinics, and to researchers. What are the ethical questions that arise and that you think are most important? Alice? So I think one of the, uh, one of the key ones here is surrounding this consent piece, which you alluded to in the question. Um, so consent is really focused, focuses back on that principle of autonomy that I discussed earlier. And so individuals should be able to make decisions which are um, right for themselves. However, to do that, they have to have full information about the implications of their decisions and a full appreciation and understanding of the risks and benefits and so on of, uh, of their decisions. So I think there's concerns around uh, consent with genetic data in a number of ways. One is that... Um, can people fully appreciate the implications of uh, giving genetic data and um, providing genetic information? Genetic technologies have changed tremendously in the last number of years and will continue to do so, so that things which weren't possible five years ago are now done on a regular basis. Um, and so what happens in five years' time or in 10 years' time, genetic data that's stored um, might be able to be used for things we didn't even imagine were possible when people initially gave, for example, a specimen or some genetic data um, to their physician or to a researcher or whoever it might be. I think the other key question that comes up is that um, when we're talking about consent, we're focusing on the individual again, and that's that autonomy piece. So we're focusing on an individual understanding um, and consenting to their genetic information being stored or used or whatever it might be. The problem is, is as I 
as I discussed right up front, is just information is always in and of itself familiar. So it always has implications for other family members. And those other family members didn't provide any consent necessarily for the use of their genetic data. Um, so I think those are some of the key, key issues that arise. Um, and then finally, the one which I think is um, becoming apparent um, more recently is just the longevity of information and how long data and um, genetic samples might be stored and used for. Um, and that could be potentially decades, if not even longer. Now, I'm just going to follow up on this question of decades or even longer, Alice. Yeah. Um, I, I give consent. Um, my genetic data goes into a computer and it stays there. Yeah. And therefore, I'm giving consent, and you've already said this, to the distribution of data, not just about me, but about my genetic progeny. Yep. people that are related to me. Now, at what point do is it necessary to put any, do you think, any kind of constraint on use of data in the future, which, and you made the point, which wasn't really understood or expected when the consent was given? Or do you think I'm being uh, impossible in what I'm asking for? What do you think? No, I, I don't think you're being impossible in what you're asking for, and I think that this is a tension that we're really seeing um, being discussed on a regular basis now uh, for researchers and healthcare providers, because on the one hand, people um, might give genetic data because they want to further science, they want to further research, and so on. And so some people might not have any problems at all in their data being used indefinitely, um, and that's what they really wish would happen. But some people might have bigger problems with that and say, no, we, I really only want my genetic data to be used and stored for this specific purpose. So I think that there's a bit of a tension there between, well, how, about, how do we balance the potential benefits of research and um, looking at data in the future with the individual concerns and privacy concerns. So there's definitely a tension there. And I think the other thing that I would bring up is where, where there's a, a tension is um, regarding trust. And what I'm talking about here is public trust in science and in healthcare. Um, so we need to really make sure when we are storing data and having collecting data for long-term use um, that the public is um, aware of such, uh, such projects going forth, um, that people who've contributed to such projects are okay uh, with this use of data, and that there's a kind of a full understanding on the broader public level of what such research involves um, and so on. And when privacy is breached, that's when we start to see huge concerns from a public um, standpoint in terms of their trust in science. And it might just be one researcher who's made a blunder and there's been a privacy breach, but that affects the public's perspective on science in general and science as a whole. Um, and that can be very problematic. That's a very serious point, isn't it? And that's why you've stressed 
the value and the importance of caring for the data yeah. in your various ways. Absolutely. Now, talking of caring things, we have to go to the break. This is where I like to say we pay the rent, so we'll do that now. This is Dr. Gordon Azali, and my guest is Dr. Alice Varani. You're listening to Family Caregivers Unite on the Voice America Variety and Empowerment Channels and CJMP 90.1 FM Community Radio. Please stay with us. We will be back. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. These days, everyone is looking for information on staying young, healthy, and fit. The Voice America Health and Wellness Network is here to help you on your quest to better health and a better you. We talk about everything from diet, fitness, and aging to substance abuse, personal growth, mental health, and much more. Learn from our experts who cover health and wellness from traditional and holistic perspectives. Tune in to the Voice America Health and Wellness Network. Healthy living starts here. Now you can take your favorite Voice America radio program with you anywhere. Sign up for our mobile app if you have an iPhone, Android, or BlackBerry. The Voice America Interactive Radio Player, powered by Aircast, gives you the freedom to listen to any of our programs anywhere, live, and on demand. No registration is required. Listen to your favorite Voice America hosts and discover new ones. Download the Voice America mobile app for iPhone, Android, or BlackBerry, powered by Aircast. Visit the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com You are listening to Family Caregivers Unite with Dr. Gordon Atherley. If you have any questions or comments about our program, please address them by email to docg at familycaregiversunite.org. Now, back to Family Caregivers Unite. Welcome back to our listeners to Family Caregivers Unite and Dr. Alice Virani. Our topic is questions of ethics in collecting family genetic data. Now, Alice, I want to talk about, or I want you to talk about, your answers to the ethical questions that you've identified that arise in connection with use and abuse of family genetic data and with the giving of consent by individuals to the sharing of their own and therefore their family genetic data. Now, you've already mentioned several of these points, but I'd like us to crystallize your answers on those particular ones. So here's the first question. What do you see as the answers to the ethical questions that arise in the use of family genetic data when the possibility exists that it could get into the wrong hands? Alice? Um, So I think uh, I'll start off this segment by just saying that uh, I don't have any clear solutions and clear answers. That's one of the one of the frustrations and joys of being being in the ethics uh, ethics world is that these questions are so uh, complex and nuanced um, that it is difficult to provide a definitive answer as to okay. We should definitely do that because usually we're, when we say we should definitely take one course of action, we're making a trade-off in terms of another course of action. So with that being said, um, 
when when we're thinking about uh, the use of uh, uh, genetic data and it possibly getting into the wrong hands, I think some of the the questions um, and uh, answers to the questions that arise um, can be mitigated um, by uh, thoroughly addressing this consent piece. Um, And the consent piece, again, is when people are... uh, giving uh, genetic data um, contribute to health providers or to researchers, they fully understand uh, what they're doing when they provide consent. Um, and I think that if they understand that there is, albeit a very slim chance that it might get hands and that the consequences of genetic discrimination and other um, harms are there, I think we're going some way to at least preparing people uh, for that possibility, albeit very slim. I think some of the other um, answers uh, that, um, that, that might be helpful um, are things like ge- uh, genetic discrimination protections um, and more secure systems for securing um, the actual genetic data themselves. Now, next question, um, still the same format, what you see as the answers to the ethical questions, and you've already uh, mentioned that crystal clear, snappy catch answers aren't necessarily what's going to come from your answers, but at the same time, you are pointing us in directions which are profoundly important. So what do you see as the answers to the ethical questions that arise in sharing widely and indefinitely family genetic data in this computerized world that we live in? Alice? Well, again, I think it uh, it relates back to having these really uh, um, uh, good consent procedures um, and to having um, really secure information systems. The key part of this question, though, is in the indefinite storage of family genetic data. So when I had talked before about the consent piece, usually when we talk about consent, we're okay, well, I consent to having, for example, this surgery done. And I understand that there's a risk of this, this, and this happening and a a potential benefit of this, this, and this. And understanding those risks and benefits and limitations, I agree or I disagree to undergo surgery. Now, the difference is when we're talking about genetic data and indefinitely storing genetic data is that Things can change with um, genetic research, uh, genetic technologies, genetic information, and even data sharing in and of itself. And so I think one of the ways that we might be able to um, um, address this ethically is by looking at consent not just as a one-point-in-time process that you get at the beginning uh, of the research endeavor or the healthcare endeavor where you're giving um, consent for genetic samples or specimens to be taken, but consent's an ongoing process so that, for example, healthcare providers and researchers would check in with you on a regular basis and say, hey, remember that specimen that you gave last year? Are you okay with us now using it? For this, or technologies change, and now genetic 
uh, technology means that we can perform this testing or so on um, so that people are able to continue to be engaged and that there's no surprises down the line where people kind of um, realize, oh, I gave this specimen 15 years ago and suddenly it's been used for something which I would have never agreed to. I wish someone had asked me for that. Does that make sense? Yeah. Now, I'm going to press you, and it's still the same format, the questions of answers, but you've mentioned security, and that is the point that every step that's practicable, however you define it, should be taken to ensure that data doesn't get into the wrong hands, to ensure that it doesn't get lost, to ensure that it isn't abused. So... The question I'm asking you now is when people are asked to give consent to the sharing of their own genetic data, what, and their family data, obviously, what are the kind of reassurances that they may want to ask about before they actually say yes? Um, And uh, is their asking for reassurances something that you would call an ethical matter or does it fall under a different category? What do you think? So I think people should um, ask for um, an understanding of where their genetic data uh, may go and the kind of things that people should be trying to understand is will my genetic data just be stored in the healthcare setting in the clinical setting, or is it potentially going to be used for research? Because clinical and research are different things. If data is just going to be stored in the clinical realm, I think there are probably fewer concerns as long as a hospital um, and so on has secure um, information systems in place. However, once a sample starts being used for research, people who contribute samples really do want to know things about, okay, who are the researchers? Are they just within my own hometown and jurisdiction, or is the potential that my sample might be sent nationally or internationally? If it is sent nationally or internationally, is it just my specimen alone, or does it have my name attached to it? Does it any other personal identifiers attached to it. Um, if I want to remove my specimen at a later time, can I do that? How would I do that? And so on. Um, so I think that those are some of the key things that people should be asking and considering uh, when uh, they are sharing genetic data. Um, and I think that they should also um, be trying to, as much as possible, balancing their individual um, considerations with what they might think of um, also in terms of uh, broader science considerations and broader health needs. Now, I'm going to follow up again on this time question. Here's a family, um, believe in research and also needed health care that relied to some degree anyway on genetic data. Um, They're all gone. We're talking 50 years ahead or whatever it is, and that generation um, is no longer with us. Would you ever see a set of circumstances where the new generation um, would have any kind of right to revoke 
the consent given all those years ago, given all the changes in circumstances, all the changes in research, all the changes in knowledge. In other words, is the consent something that can be reversed? And if so, who could do the reversing? Alice? So, um, the short answer is yes. Consent can be, can be revoked first. And we see this um, not just in genetics, but we see this in other areas of healthcare. Um, so, for example, one of the areas that we know it happens in is organ donation. So, some people sign up to be organ donors, and at the time of their passing away, their family members say, actually, no, we do not um, think that organ donation should go ahead, and that person's consent is revoked um, in those cases. And that happens about 10% of the time um, in Canada. And we do see it in genetics also, um, that consent might be revoked. Um, and I think perhaps in genetics, there's an even stronger case for revoking consent, because when you're revoking consent in the genetic arena, you're, um, you can also make an argument that by revoking consent, um, you're doing so because it has implications for you or for family members. Because, again, we're talking about the familial nature of genetic data. Um, so I think that, yes, you can revoke uh, consent. But... On the other hand, uh, family members may also be able to provide consent for testing when the individual who passed away um, was not even asked. So, for example, occasionally in the cancer world, we will see that people will request uh, a tissue biopsy from um, a deceased relative from several years ago be tested for um, a genetic test because that uh, genetic test would have uh, important medical implications for uh, surviving and living family members. And there are definitely cases in which we would, um, we would say that that would be ethically appropriate. All right. In other words, this time and ethics uh, that you've referred to uh, really does raise uh, some important key questions which uh, you as a researcher and your colleagues as researchers uh, will be looking at more and more, I guess. Now, well, once again, we have to take the break, so we'll do that now. This is Dr. Gordon Adley, and my guest is Dr. Alex Virani. You're listening to Family Caregivers Unite on the Voice America Variety and Empowerment Channels and CJMP 90.1 FM Community Radio. Please stay with us. We will be back. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com The latest business information is made simple with the Voice America Business Network. The professionals in the business world bring you live talk radio shows featuring an array of business topics, strategies for building wealth, sales and marketing, stock trading, investing, and business technology. Voice America business hosts are professionals in their fields and bring to the airwaves weekly business discussions that offer up-to-date information, advice, and education. The Voice America Business Network, the bottom line in business talk. 
follow the Voice America Talk Radio Network on Twitter. We're at Voice America TRN. You'll get the latest fix on what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and general happenings that you should know about at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. Now you don't have to miss anything when you're away from your home or office. Just go to twitter.com forward slash Voice America TRN or follow along with us at Voice America TRN, the Voice America Talk Radio Network. We're on the cutting edge of social media. Can you keep up? Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. You are listening to Family Caregivers Unite with Dr. Gordon Atherley. If you have any questions or comments about our program, please address them by email to docg at familycaregiversunite.org. Now, back to Family Caregivers Unite. Welcome back to our listeners to Family Caregivers Unite and Dr. Alice Virani. Our topic is questions of ethics in collecting family genetic data. Alice, now let's talk about what more you would like to do and see done to provide answers to the ethical questions, some of the very difficult ones in particular that you've already identified, um, and broadly in connection with family genetic data in our increasingly computerized world. So, first question, what more would you like to do to provide answers to the ethical questions that you've identified and that arise? Alice? So I think one of the key things um, that I would like to see done is have more public input into these ethical questions. I think as uh, clinicians and as researchers um, and as healthcare providers, we sometimes make assumptions about what the public might want and what families might want um, without actually going out and uh, seeking uh, the actual public's input. So there has been some work done in this area, and I applaud the work that's been done in this area, looking at the public viewpoints on such issues. But I really do think we need to have uh, increased dialogue on this. And increased dialogue would do a couple of things. One, it would awareness of these types of issues um, in society. But two, it would really help answer some of the key ethical questions we have. And so it would help us answer some of those questions as to how concerned should we be about privacy? Um, we think that privacy is uh, tremendously important, but um, is that changing? Is that changing in future generations? So, for example, younger generations are now using social media on a regular basis, uh, applications such as Facebook and Twitter and so on. Um, photos are everywhere all over the Internet. Um, does that mean or does that um, give us an indication that people's viewpoints on privacy might be shifting? Um, I don't know, but I do think that we need to explore that further to really understand societal perspectives and cultural perspectives on these types of issues. Now, I'm going to press you a little bit more on your personal role in this. Is this kind of research that you've been talking about, this investigation, these inquiries that you've been talking about, is the, are these things that you personally would like to be involved with? Um, 
Yes, and I have done some research in this area already. Um, I have been involved in um, several public forums, public deliberation forums, um, in which we've had uh, diverse members of the public come together to talk about such issues. Um, And we've had them talk about issues like biobanks, where genetic uh, information is stored and used for research. Um, And we've had some really valuable input uh, from these uh, public engagement initiatives regarding, for example, how we should consent people for such research. What are the important questions to be considering in terms of privacy and discrimination? So these these, um, endeavors have... um, I have been part of some of them, and I would like to be part of more of them going forward because, as I mentioned earlier, genetics is a, uh, an exciting field, but it's one which changes pretty rapidly. And so I think we need to continue to seek public input uh, on, on these issues as they arise. Now, you've, you've said <laughs> very well what you would like to do and how much you would like to be involved in these kind of things. Now, I'm asking a question what more you would like to see done and by whom? In other words, who else should be involved in doing whatever you see is necessary to be done to provide answers to the ethical questions of the kind that you've been raising? Who, who else, in other words? Alice? Well, I think, uh, you know, it's, it's all very well if there's researchers and clinicians like me um, who are interested in, in, in doing such research. But one of the key parts is how... Um, we get um, the governmental bodies to actually see and understand um, these issues as well. And so, for example, one of the things I would like to see is more policymakers being engaged in such research. Uh, we've talked about genetic discrimination to some degree in this uh, in this discussion. Now, Canada doesn't have a genetic discrimination law, as do uh, most of the other uh, G8 nations, Um, and so we have to ask questions as to, okay, well, why doesn't that law exist, or why aren't there um, any provisions regarding genetic discrimination in Canada? Um, And so I would like to see more engagement on a broader um, governmental level in these types of issues. Good. Now... This is the last question, but it's a kind of um, multiple question in a way. What, what's your message for people who are being asked to give consent for use of their genetic data? What, what do you want to share with them by way of either advice or concerns or anything else? Alice? Uh, I think when people are being asked to give consent for genetic data, the key question they have to ask themselves is why uh, they're giving um, consent for use of their genetic data. Is this for a clinical reason, i.e., is it to benefit their own health, Um, or is this for research? Because those are two very different uh, considerations people give consent, they need to make sure they fully understand uh, what the implications of providing genetic data are and what they expect to get back themselves from from providing genetic data. In the clinical realm, they'll expect to get test results back, which will hopefully have meaningful results for them or their family members. But in the research realm, they might not get anything back. However, in the research realm, they might be contributing to the good for 
one of the other things which I think would be important for people to consider, um, and this is more on the clinical basis, is if they are doing genetic testing for inherited disorder, whether or not they have um, insurance in place themselves. So um, prior to going through genetic testing, they may want to consider getting life or disability insurance in place because of that risk I mentioned previously about uh, genetic discrimination for insurance um, once someone has had genetic testing done. Okay, now let me take, take us a little step further. People, uh, the population, the, the people who are treated, who, we, who hope that they will benefit from research, should they become more active in a kind of social or political way and begin to get their voices heard? Or do you think um, their voices are being heard enough? What's your answer to that rather loaded question? Alice? <laughs> Um, well, I think my answer is probably that it is important for voices to be heard, and um, I don't think voices are being heard enough. I mean, I, I do a lot of work in research ethics, and um, I see a lot of research protocols coming through, and I see a lot of uh, the discussions that goes on in the ethics literature regarding genetics and so on, and I think there are lots of unanswered questions. So one of the big ones right now uh, is regarding incidental findings in genetic research. So um, those are findings which are um, found in the course of genetic analysis, which were not the primary purpose um, of the genetic analysis being done. So, for example, a child is... Um, is undergoing analysis for intellectual disability and we find that that child has an increased risk of developing cancer later on in life, what should we do with those findings? Um, and I think those are big questions and which people just don't know the answer to. There's a lot of disagreement and debates going on currently about what we should do about such issues. And so I do think we need um, people to be engaged and give input as to what they think would be the most appropriate course of action. Give them voice. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Now, we've come, unfortunately, to the end of this um, tremendously important um, episode. Thank you, Alice. You're welcome. Thanks for sharing with us your experience and your insights and your advice. And all I can say to you is, for everybody's sake, I wish you every success in the work you're doing, in the research you're involved with, in that sense of direction that you are in the course of developing and you and your colleagues are developing. So thank you. I want to say thank you to our listeners. We'd like to hear your comments on this episode. And from our listeners, I'd like to hear about ideas for topics or if you're interested in being a guest on the show. Our next episode will be when and why genetic counseling is essential. Please join us, same time, same spot on the internet. Talk with you then. Thank you again for joining us this week for Family Caregivers Unite with your host, Dr. Gordon Atherley. Please tune in again next Tuesday at 10 a.m. Pacific Time, 1 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. And until then, we hope our program will help make the coming week easier and more hopeful. And I do appreciate you being around. 
Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management.